Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. And I'm Tim McIntosh. And you're listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader, on which we are going to be answering your questions about Ernest Gaines's A Gathering of Old Men. We've come to the end. We've discussed the ending. All has been revealed. And now it's time to answer your questions. You posted those questions on Facebook and you emailed them. If you would like to do that in the future, don't forget to, you can, you can join us over on that lively conversation that we have on Facebook. Facebook is in many ways a problem, but the Close Reads community that is on Facebook is not. So thanks to everyone who participates in that. Um, there's like, I don't know, 4,000, 4,500 people on there commenting. And if you're Brandon LeBlanc, you're picking nits and so forth. Um, <laughs> Brandon, who has been appearing with us on the, uh, the Patreon episodes. So uh, yeah, we appreciate the conversation. You can also email us. Uh, if you want to email a question or comment, you can always do that at david at goldberrybooks.com. As I said, we are going to be answering your questions on today's episode. Before we do that though, Tim, tell us what's going on in the plays, the thing. Uh, so people can, you know, we do this at the end a lot, but Q and a episode is a good time to just kind of let people know what you guys have going on over there on that, the little Shakespeare pod you're doing. We just completed a five episode series on the taming of the shrew, probably maybe Shakespeare's most controversial play the question of misogyny is discussed deeply and very well. Um, and we are about to record our Q&A episode. So if you guys have been paying attention or are going to catch up on uh, Taming of the Shrew episodes, it's a great time to post questions on this on the Facebook, the Close Reads Discussion group Facebook page. Um, I am also in preparations to do a couple of episodes just about Shakespeare's work in general. So I think I'm going to take a little break from recording before Heidi and Brandon and I do Henry the Fourth, Part One, and I'm going to release a couple of episodes just about um, kind of a big picture overview of who William Shakespeare was and what his plays are about. <laughs> the end. You're going to say something else? No. The, 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 you made a face that looked like you were going to keep going, and I didn't want to. Interrupt. Oh no! Then, sorry, sorry. So, you know, sometimes I step in, and then I talk over somebody, and then I was trying to be polite, and then it ended up just being an awkward silence, and the people thought that their radios or their pod, their phone stopped working, or I thought that mine stopped working, fell out, or I was muted, or something. Anyway, so we've got the place the thing. Great content over there. If you have uh, never listened to the place the thing, what are you doing? You should be subscribed to that feed, and you should be, you know, especially if you're getting ready to teach or read a play, you know, like that is going to be a resource that's always there, you know, for those plays. Um, and those will be re-listenable episodes. I, for example, am right now teaching The Taming of the Shrew in my medieval humanities class and requiring them to listen to the plays, the thing. And it's led to that's many clever. rich conversations and discussions in, our, in class. So thank you, Tim. You, you are enriching many 
many people, including my students. Well, that's really great to hear. I, I want to say that one of our commentators, Nora Ankrum, is new to the podcast. She recorded these five episodes, and then she made a pitch to the West Virginia Shakespeare Festival. She wrote a grant, and the idea for her grant was to create a touring educational program as part of the festival, and she won the award. So next nice. year, her students, students beside her own, are going to see her production of Taming of the Shrew. And I think it's just really compelling because she's not only an accomplished actor and director, but she has also been very skeptical about Taming of the Shrew. She's mm. like, not my favorite play. <laughs> I think it's misogynistic. But I think that um, in our discussions with Matt Bianco, there was kind of, it's really worth listening to. It's really worth listening to. But I think a little, it, it, I'm just so happy for Nora that she got this big award and maybe the podcast, you know, help contribute a little bit to it. At least we hope so. Yeah, that's spectacular. Awesome. Good job by Nora. Okay, so we also have lots of other stuff going on. The Daily Poem is back in earnest. Um, Heidi and I are doing that. We've got Withy Wendell. So, if, you know, you've got kids who love hearing from the authors who write their books. Please check that out. That's a really goofy, fun time that Graham and I have. And then, of course, there's Bibliography, where I'm interviewing authors about the books that they love. We also, of course, have our Patreon uh, content, our Patreon show. Right now, we're doing Anna Karenina. And Tim and Heidi don't know that I'm going to bring this up. But before we dive into the questions, I want to just kind of give a summary of some of the things that we're thinking about doing for Patreon next year, because we've got a bunch of new things that we're going to do. Uh, we got together uh, a couple weeks ago, threw Tim a little birthday party, and uh, planned out some things for Patreon, and we're hoping to have another retreat. Uh, we're working on the details for location and dates and all that for, for the retreat. But for Patreon, we're going to have... We're gonna have a lot of fun. So we wanted to focus on experiences, things that you all can participate in um, that can kind of keep enhancing the, the opportunities for discussion and um, community and all those sorts of things. So for example, once a quarter, uh, if you're on the right, the appropriate tier, we're gonna discuss short stories. So we're gonna have a, a short story bonus episode. We'll do those episodes live. Heidi, what, what's something else that you, that, that you are excited about that we're doing on Patreon? Well, I'm going to go with the obvious one, which is, dun, 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 our big idea, Close Rants, which is a small to medium, probably small length of us going off on a literary rant about something, maybe in conversation with each other. Maybe we disagree. Maybe we want to take the gloves off a little bit more than we do on the flagship show. Or go off maybe of the Tim topic of the book. Right. Exactly. Uh, anything that just makes us that we have a strong opinion about and want to express, particularly a negative opinion, a rant, so to speak. And we're going to give ourselves a little bit of freedom to just flow with our close rants. Uh, and those will be available on Patreon. For example, I asked Tim McIntosh <laughs> to feel free to shed whatever inhibitions he might feel and go on a rant about the book of the dun cow, which was not his favorite book. And maybe just maybe that might be an interesting kind of rant for some of our listeners. Maybe you love it and you just want to make fun of Tim for his faulty <laughs> opinions. Maybe you don't love it and you want to hear some backup on that. Um, 
So every once in a while, we have strong opinions about something, but we we hold those opinions in a lot of the time, and this will be our chance to let them out. But in good fun. We're not in like fun. trying right. to right. pick fights or let it be dramatic. It's just it's to be fun. And, and most of the time, it'll probably be really funny. Um, yep. I'm pretty excited because I, I have some specific topics in mind for the two of you <laughs> that I've heard you rant about over um, drinks late at night. That would be so great to hear on a Patreon episode. So, so like we're throwing gonna... red meat into the center of the <laughs> a ring. tiger cage. It's yeah, going to be amazing. Yeah. I can't wait. If you're at the highest tier, we're also going to do something where we're going to choose a couple of books for you, like specifically for you. So Tim, Heidi and I uh, will get together and, based on some information, some feedback from you, we were, we'll, we'll choose books that we'll send you. So a little uh, thank you to people on that tier. Tim, anything else that you want to mention? Tote bags. Yeah, we got our tote bags. We've got, I said the short story things. We were going to have, um, wow, my dog. Bonus just, content. Bonus content. David, you wanted to do some like a movie, us watching some literary movies and commenting. Yeah, like and, as we're going. Right, exactly. Yeah. yeah We've got lots of ideas for, for content. Um, so can you, my stupid dog. Yes, my stupid we can hear dog your dog. Interrupting Harper. Real life. Hashtag. Yeah, no one else is IRL. home. So right now, there's probably a cow like an acre away that the dog is smelling. And so now he's, she's flipping out and no one's home. So I'm going to have to get up in a second if she doesn't stop. And this take sounds care of like this. a close rant. It does. Oh, this is a close rant. Yeah. So this would be able to normally be over on the show, but we need to get into the question. So I just want to say, if you, if you would be interested in supporting the show or continuing your support of the show over on Patreon, please head over to patreon.com slash close reads. We're looking for about a hundred new people. That's kind of like our goal for this year uh, to help us grow the show and, you know, pay people a little bit more and make sure we're, you know, Logan green does Another yeoman's work. Rant. Yeah. I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so <laughs> if you're interested in helping us, um, you know, continue to grow and improve, improve the show and feed our kids and stuff like that, then please head over to patreon.com slash close reads. I mean, not to like, Ghost you or anything. No shame. And with that, let's answer some questions. So, that's our new QA bumper music. I forgot to mention this to you guys. Come on, that's great bumper music. <laughs> no, I love it. I love it. I don't I, yeah. I don't believe what Logan's you're saying, gonna go Heidi. on a rant on a close rant where he's oh, like he is, having to figure out how to make that into music. <laughs> I do love it, but maybe not for the reasons you want me to love it. <laughs> It's like, hey. does it make you look like a dork? But <laughs> so, here's a question from Wendy that I want to use to to kick this off. Why do you think Matthew never said what exactly or what actually happened to defend himself? Like, why does he not defend himself? Why does he allow the sheriff Mapes to believe that he is the killer? Do you think he was willing to take the fall for the murder? Says Wendy. Uh, Heidi, you you take that one away while I go um, eliminate dog. Silence barking. your dog. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I think that it is because he loves Charlie. That's, I mean, I think it's just as simple as that. He's Charlie's godfather and he wanted to protect him. And he knew he was the perfect fall guy because he's known to be the only one uh, of this community who's actually stood up to the white man. Um, and therefore he knew that it would be easy for Mapes to believe it was him. And so it was an act of sacrificial and courageous love. Tim, one hundred percent, one hundred percent. Yeah, I don't know. 
I don't know what other way you could see it. I might lack imagination, but I don't know any other way you could see it. He was part of the gathering, right? Mm-hmm. Like it makes him not not the uh, not the one who did it, but another one, like the first of the gathering of old men that yeah. protected protected their own. I agree. One hundo p. Me too. <laughs> I definitely know what you said and agree with mm-hmm. that. <laughs> yep. So let's talk about the stranger because mm-hmm. Barbara Brock brings this up. We mentioned last week we would. Hopefully, get the chance to talk about it. The way Barbara puts it is, "What was the purpose of the stranger character in the bar?" Didn't get the significance of that part. And we mentioned how there are some things that get, you know, left open, uh, the, you know, plot holes. I suppose you could say the things that just were not closed off and maybe leave you a little bit unsatisfied with that particular element in the story. Tim, what what's your read on that that strange character in, in the bar and that whole scene? I I don't think there was really anything that strange about it. The, th- the only thing that I found to be strange was that, if I'm not mistaken, he was unnamed. Did he ever get a name? Right? He was just unnamed. So every other just character yeah. is named. Um, but the professor is not. And that's, I think, that makes him unique. But I don't think that, I don't know, I just didn't read anything symbolically into that character. Okay, that being said, Part of the reason I like this novel so much is it seems like these different characters in so many ways are representatives of swaths of society, you know, like um, Luke is like representative of kind of like the old crazy town racist South fix is sort of representative of the old racist South and it's kind of more gentlemanly mode, you know, so all these different characters represent different kind of segments of society. Um, and so I see the professor in some ways kind of like representing an educated swath of society, but I didn't read anything more deeply symbolic into him. Like, I don't think he was an angel. I don't think that, he, you know, or anything like that. Heidi, did you I guys see, see you something mean. more? No, more I see what you mean by not deeply symbolic. I, I think that that I think that's true. But I did. I I like what you said. I wanted to build on that. What you said about different characters representing uh, societal forces mm-hmm. uh, that are contributing to either the problem or the potential solution to the divided racial issue in the South, and he is um, he he the professor displays a modicum of courage, right? By standing up to strangers in a small town where, you know, we don't like your kind here kind of small town. Um, And yet he voices an extremely unpopular opinion and he's ineffectual at making it happen, but he's courageous enough to have a voice, right? And to speak into it. And I think that that then kind of does indeed represent this a certain societal force of change that's coming, right? He he is a professor of black literature at the University of Louisiana. And so he he's he he represents then a a force within society that is willing to take a stand that is present that is there but is not as yet effectual enough to be able to stop the violence uh, in the south. But they're coming in, right? Like he's a stranger making his way through town. And so I think that, that there is a symbolic element and an allegorical element from his character that there are these outside forces from the North, from the, in, from the intelligentsia who are stating that they are present and willing to speak, and yet they can't 
they're not effectual enough to actually make a difference as of yet within this story and in then in the wider society. So it's like a clash of subcultures? Yeah, I think so. Like he's there. I mean, he's courageous, but he doesn't do what he set out to do. And so, yeah, I think that he does represent kind of this societal force of like a liberal in, uh, intellectual movement towards equality that's crying out for, for change, but can't quite make it happen. Mm. It seems like he's the arbiter of a new story. Right. Right. Agreed. Right. I mean, and he even says something to that extent, like, um, what is the, what's the line that he repeats a few times? We don't do that anymore, or something like that. Remember that? He says yeah, it repeatedly. To that effect. To that yeah, effect, yeah. yeah. So, Tim, mm. one, of, one of the things I loved about this book is that, and I suppose some people could see this as a unsatisfying, but I love the way it's, it, the scene making was done. You know, you could, you could see this book being on the stage, yeah. you know, the sets are simple. There's like yeah. three places. Um, you've got Fix's house or whichever of the family's house they were at. Mm. There's the, the place in the field uh, and you've got the bar, you know, you've got, basically you've got three. I mean, I know there's like a few other spots at the beginning here and there, but you can see this on the stage. And so, how would you incorporate a character like that when, if you were to adapt this to the stage or the screen, say, I feel like you either have to emphasize that character, like give him a real defined purpose, give him a certain lines, certain language um, that, that like enhances the thesis of your particular adaptation, or mm-hmm. you'd have to cut him out because mm-hmm. otherwise experiencing this in like a one and a half hour play type thing, like everything, every little moment becomes so brought to the fore, you know? Yeah. How, what would you do with this mysterious, strange character as, as, a, as a playwright? One way that you show strength on stage is by having a character hold a fixed point. And one way that you show weakness on stage is by having characters move around in agitation around a central point. Now, you can also, like someone who's immobile on stage might also be seen as someone who just has like who's calcified, who has opinions or it belongs to an age and is unwilling to change. Mm. But I think in this instance, placing the professor in a seated position and having him maintain that seated position while Luke and his friends are just like all agitated and spinning around him, you know, I think that is the way that I would stage it because there's a sort of moral command that that gives the professor. He's not going to move. You know, this is where he is. And Luke and his friends are realizing that they're losing a grip on kind of like the old world. And so to have them agitatedly, like moving all around him, trying to get him off his spot, I think it'd be a really powerful visual for what's happening in Louisiana at this time. I think you should also make him kind of small and nerdy looking though, because he doesn't actually do anything he is a voice of goodness are you saying small and nerdy people don't do anything i just want to be clear just i think you should juxtapose the visual cue of small and nerdy with the moral commands of the fixed point thing you're talking about that's i think that would be perfect Tim, i think it's time for a close rant in which i go on a rant about heidi's prejudices against small and nerdy people i'm ready for it i'm listening to it 
Unfortunately, that's not. We'll have. We'd have to do that on on, on the Patreon page. Oh, uh, tease, so, man! <laughs> represent your small and nerdy. Yep. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> okay. So hey, this brings us to a question from Rachel, which is on the Facebook page, and she mentions what role do Miss Merle and Jack Marshall play? And I'm reminded of Jack because he was in that bar scene with the stranger. So, is is he a villain? Of a sort, Rachel asks, for choosing to not be involved for so long with what his family began by being slaveholders or plantation owners. Why include their characters at all? So Miss Merle shows up with food and things like that. Jack Marshall, we the Marshall family is obviously the landowners, the plantation owners. He's there at the bar kind of distancing himself. How do you read that character, Heidi? Or those two characters? Uh, yeah, actually, this is a great question because um, that is... I think yet another ineffectual societal force. Um, he, you have the professor kind of representing this new liberal intelligentsia that's talking a big game, but doesn't actually, but kind of just like moves through town and doesn't stay long enough or have enough clout to produce any kind of change. Mm -hmm. And then on the other hand, you have the old way, like the old plantation owner. That's what Jack Marshall is, uh, who he he's ineffective. Um, and has actually built his wealth on the backs of the labor from uh, on slave labor, enslaved humans. And he is all um, and, and he does nothing and ends up just drunk and ineffective and having absolutely no voice. So he's going out like he's the old way. He's drunk and insensible and he's. But And he's not fighting for any change at all. In fact, he's the one benefiting from it, although he's drunk at the bar. So now in my head, I'm staging it and I would have him, you know, him on the other side of the bar, slumped over, completely still, you know, really obviously drunk. Um, and so he's he's yet another representation of a societal force that's contributing to the problem and unable to solve it on his way out. He's like a passive part of the problem now, mm -mm. as opposed Agreed. to... Luke and Fix are still active parts of the problem. He was a passive part of the problem. And I think his failings a generation earlier were more kind of harmful because he just kept everything entrenched. Now he's just going to kind of, it just seems like he's just going to be brushed aside by what, by whatever force ends up carrying the day. Mm. Right. So his wife too, Beatrice. Who's you know mm -hmm. poking around in the with the with his her stick looking for pecans? Oh, and Miss Merle, um, mm -hmm. and and she, you know, she's kind, she's benevolent, right? Like she brings them sandwiches on the porch and starts handing them out, and but she's fussy and unable to do any real good. Um, so I think that she is kind of this the ineffectual white woman who who wants like she she's kind right she's bringing them sandwiches she's trying to calm everybody down um but she doesn't she doesn't do anything robust um to contribute to any kind of meaningful change on behalf of these oppressed peoples well let's talk then about a white woman who is attempting to do more and that's candy we got a question from elizabeth via email who says was candy's relationship with matthew Matthew, 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 one of one more akin to an owner slave or a child parent. So she's creating these two dichotomies. She says, obviously, it's extremely complex, but I'd love it if you could work, uh, would talk about that relationship. So I gave you some frames. <laughs> um, but, you know, there is a, definitely a contrast between 
Miss Merle and Candy. And we didn't talk a lot about Candy. And I think that what you're saying there is this is a great chance to jump onto that. So Miss Merle, she's too fussy, you said, I think was your word, to really make any change. And Candy lacks that fussiness altogether. She's she's aggressive in her wish to support these guys to the point where she's willing to say that she committed the crime. Um, so how, how do you read Candy and then in particular her relationship with Matthew? Tim, what, what do you think about this? You want to go first or Heidi? Who do you, Tim, Tim, you choose who goes first. I'll go first. <laughs> I, I have a lot of sympathy with Candy. Hmm. And I have a lot of sympathy for what she's trying to do. I think she may be, somebody mentioned on the Facebook page that she's misguided, like good intentions that are misguided. And I think I might say something like that. I think that she is a realist. I think she believes that Matthew did, that Matthew committed the murder. I think that she openly acknowledges Matthew is going to die without some help. She has no idea that this is going to be the moment where the old men are going to gather and stand their ground, you know? Like, nobody knows this until it starts to happen. So, I think... Can I interrupt you right yeah. there, Tim, yeah. and say it was actually Candy's idea? If oh, you that's remember, right. That's she right, was that's the one right. who's like, go get their right. shotguns and bring their the shells. Okay, and, and in fairness... Does she know that it's actually going to happen? In, fa- in fairness to kind of like what I said earlier, yeah, she is the one who says this is what should happen. Does she actually know that everybody's going to show up? I mean, maybe. Maybe she does. Or maybe she thinks, you know, there's a good chance that the old men are going to show up. Um, so I think one criticism of Kathy would be that, that she has a white savior complex. Um, and I just don't know if I'm willing to subscribe to that. I'm not sure that I'm willing to subscribe to that. I think that Candy is like, what's the alternative? Do nothing. Or like not try to gather well, the so men. If, is she, if she has a white savior complex, then is she doing, then that would suggest that what she's doing is for herself. Right. So is she helping because she because she wants she has some noble version of view of herself or because she actually wants to help these people that's to me is the dividing is she, line and how we think yeah, about I think this you're whole exactly right. thing i think that's a, that you're exactly right david i read her motivations as not being selfish i read them as being sincere and benevolent and full of concern for matthew and that, that brings us to the, the relationship right with matthew yeah, because if if that relationship is true, if there is true affection there, yeah, if it is, if she believes, you know, if, if she genuinely loves him, then she is acting. She recognizes that she has a degree of power as a white woman, a degree of influence, and that she can she can alter what's going to happen to them. If she has true affection for him, then that is noble in the right way. Mm-hmm. If she just and then on the other hand, perhaps she views herself as a, as a martyr and has a martyr complex more than a white savior complex. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the third option is that she feels guilty for what white people have done and so is acting. And I think the, part, the thing that makes her complicated is that he doesn't tell us what the answer to that is. Like, that's what makes well, her see, compelling character. I think Matthew, at the end of the book, 
when he speaks to her, I read that exchange as Matthew is genuinely grateful for her. I mean, he also recognizes like this is something he's got to do. Yeah, there's a certain point now. at which she can't solve the problem right, anymore. Right, right, right. But but I read his concern for her as being a response to her genuine affection for him. Hmm. Heidi, what do you think? Yeah. So there's two differences, I think, between Candy and what we in modernity, which was completely nothing that Ernest J. Gaines would have ever heard of or thought about, um, call a white savior. And the two differences that I see are, number one, the white savior mentality is ideological, not personal, meaning I'm going to protect black people or whatever, right? I'm, and not a What do you mean by whatever? I have a true affection. Black people or whatever. Okay. You mean like- or meaning or an oppressed group, oh, right? Okay. The I idea like, of white savior yeah, isn't yeah, yeah. just attached to yeah. uh, this question of black versus white, right? right? right okay. be white savior in many contexts. Right. Um, so, but- the white savior mentality is I, as a white person, am going to assert my dominance and my privilege in order to help these poor people who can't help themselves, right? That And that doesn't seem to be candy. She's not there to help these people. She's there to help a person whom she loves and has affection for. The second difference, I think... Um, I can't remember right now. Blah. I should have written it down. What you don't remember what I, you were saying? I don't remember that, but that I don't hey, remember Tink, what I was Could you do your say. sound effect again? That I might... know, right? <laughs> do that, and then it'll bring it to mind. I'm gonna think of it at two o'clock this morning, or in the middle <laughs> yeah, of while right, one of you are talking. Right. Um, I, just do the sound effect as an alert that we're ready to listen. Thank you. I I will not do. We that. can come back but to it. I, we can come uh, back no, to I'll, it. I'll think of it later. But I, I think that that is really important. That question of that she's, as you point out, Tim, she's doing it for a person. However, here's where I do think that we see some latent racism in Candy, which is when Matthew insists that he is going to be a man and own and take responsibility for what he has done, she essentially orders him. And asserts an amount of dominance over him, which you could say comes from her fear and her affection, but that's not the tone that 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 story has. The story very much has a master-slave tone in the way she speaks to him. Like, I know what is best for you and you need to obey me. Heal, stand down, Matthew. That is her tone. And I think that Ernest J. Gaines is in that moment exposing that in spite of her, that she does have a true affection for him, but she has been infected or, or either intentionally or unintentionally with this idea that because she is white and privileged, she knows what's best for him. And she has a right to insist on that. And I, I think that there is some justification within the story for saying that there is a benevolent racism inherent in Candy that may or may not be her fault, but is there. I don't think it really matches what we call white savior, which is, by the way, a made up term and doesn't, you know, 
that's not something that Ernest J. Gaines was acquainted with. That's a, that's contemporary. Um, but I, I think that it is in the story that Candy is, I think there's some indictment of her and her and her knowing best in that moment. I don't remember that um, conversation between Matthew and Candy that vividly. I remember it. But my question, Heidi, is why couldn't it be read that Candy recognizes she has more social power in the world, in Louisiana, than does Matthew? And so her attempts, like her getting big at Matthew and kind of like issuing commands is less born of racism and more born of a recognition that she has cachet that he doesn't have. Sure. I mean, yeah, I think as the, um, as the email to David said, it's a complicated issue and people are capable of feeling more than one thing at one time, right? And having yeah. more than one motivation at one time. I think that's true. And so, and I, I don't deny that, that she is benevolently exerting her social position and her privilege in order to protect this person that she genuinely loves as a person. That's, that I think is, I think that's unavoidable in the story. I also think that she believes herself at some level to know what's best for Matthew more than he does because of her race and position in the society. So devil's advocate here one more time. Couldn't you say like if, if her, if this was her grandfather and he was white, she could have also said the same thing to him because you know, like saying you're an old man, you don't, you don't know what the situation is right now. Just, you know, just go along with what I'm saying here. Like I, you could, I've seen, you could see that happen in a story too. I think you're probably right, but I think, I, I guess it's just goes to the same thing. Like there's, she, Gaines doesn't just tell us the answer to this question. And that's why she's a, right, know, exactly. She's an interesting mm-hmm. character. Uh, Elizabeth right. had another question that I want to, it's, it's related to this. She said, you know, she mentions that we read their eyes were watching God recently. And she, she wants, she says, can you talk about the different treatments of racism in these two books? She says, it seems that Hurston portrays race as an racism as an external force, but then for Gaines, it's an, it's in it's racism is internalized by the characters. Did you read it that way? And do you like, how do you, how do you read the treatments of racism? How, how do you, how would you answer that? Is it external or is it internal? Um, an external force or an internal, you know, I think it's both. I think that it's clear it's been, and I, I think this is connected to the conversation about candy. I, th- I think it's been absorbed passively. Like there are some, like Luke Will, for example, and his gang, mm-hmm. his mob, essentially, his drunken mob. They are actively choosing to think and act this way. I think yeah. there's other characters in the story, both black and white, who have passively absorbed these social forces, uh, even in their attempts to resist them. And I think Candy's a great example of that. And, and I think what Ernest J. Gaines does is lets, as you pointed out, David, lets that be complicated in both the black and white characters and has a charitable posture towards the fact that you can't live in a society without absorbing the message, the, the zeitgeist. You can't. And, and he just kind of 
names it and gives us a character, some of whom are malevolent, some of whom are defeated, some of whom are trying to resist uh, and doing varying degrees of effective jobs of that. And and then lets the reader kind of um, wrestle with those things for themselves, which I think is the whole power of fiction, right? And, and so I think, I think it's, I think it's both. And I'm not trying to be a cop out. I think that that's one. I think she's bringing up such a good question, which is one of the questions of the novel. And, and, and you're going to see kind of on a continuum and uh, in various characters, you know, the interpretation of that question. Tim, what do you, what do you think about that? I, I agree with you. I think in, a gathering of old men, it's both internal and external. And I think in Hurston's book, it's more external. But I also want to say Hurston's book, for the most part, it almost bypasses like the racial problems of that time and place. It doesn't bypass them. Like it certainly acknowledges their reality. It assumes them. Mm -hmm. That's right. But it's Um, within the black culture. It's right. It's like almost- Not really about the clash between black and white culture. Exactly. Exactly. Like as far as I can recall- Hurston's only white character is a sheriff, which I think is like kind of telling. Yeah. Um, but it's about, he shows up this the is the world. End. This is what it means to live as a black person in this world. Right. This right, is right. about, a, this is more like Richard Wright. This is a, there is a clash yeah, between exactly, the black and the white exactly. and what happens when they come up against each other. And then questions I, of justice get brought up in within that scheme. Yes. I think part of the reason that I appreciate Gaines's book so much is that it does address both internal and external and internal, forces of racism in this community. I, and I, what a challenge to do that with accuracy and grace. I, the more I think about this book, the more I like it. <laughs> so there's a, there's a really interesting question here, kind of shifting gears a little bit, because that's what has to happen on a Q&A episode. Uh, this is from Krista, longtime listener. She says, um, Thanks to Close Reads, I now have new favorite authors of which I have read multiple books in each author's canon. Wendell Berry, Wallace Stegner, and Ernest J. Gaines. Since these men were colleagues together, what are some similarities between their writing, style, characters, and or plot? I love them all, she says, and would, I'm wondering if you can name what it is that makes me so attracted to their writing and their stories. That one got seconded also. Any thoughts on this, Heidi? Oh, did you? I had my I had the Zoom screen down so that I could read the question, and I come back. So here's what just right happened. Right as I'm saying, Heidi, listeners, <laughs> listeners, here's what happened. I have like a coughing fit because I just took a drink of water and swallowed it wrong. So I put myself on mute and like ducked out of the screen and raised my hand, like "Don't ask me first. And then exactly as I did that, David's like, "Do you have any thoughts on this?" I, I had the screen down though because I've got Facebook up to read the question, so I didn't see any right. of this happening because she was muted. So, right. sure, Tim. Which was really, <laughs> yes. No, I'm done coughing now and I have thoughts. Um, I think that um, one of the things that we're seeing in all three of those authors is a uh, an invitation to see beyond, and I, I've said this before, so it's not going to be surprised, to see beyond ideology into the human and to take a look in a very unflinching manner at the divisions and fault lines in American culture through the eyes of ordinary people living within them, within those forces and within American culture, uh, and, and to kind of illuminate 
ordinary people wrestling with these complex issues in our land, in our times, uh, well, close to our times, um, and illuminate them with grace and ask questions uh, and to trust us as the audience, as the reader enough to give us something complicated for us to wrestle through uh, while also inviting us to love these people instead of just take a stand on the issues, right? Um, And that is what I see in all three of those specific authors. And that's what I love so much about them. Mm. Tim, anything you want to add? I don't feel qualified to talk about Wallace Stegner. So I'll only talk about the commonalities I see between Wendell Berry and Ernest J. Gaines. And they're basically exactly what Heidi just mentioned. I think that using fiction as an opportunity to kind of explore the inner recesses of these characters, um, both the black characters and the white characters, and the kind of like, it allows us to see a spectrum of convictions among these different people. It's, I, I think, and I think Heidi touched on this, it's so easy to just drop people into buckets. You're a racist, you're not a racist, you know, you're, um, you're one of the good guys, you're one of the bad guys. And one of the things I appreciate both about Barry and Gaines is that these characters are kind of like all over the place. You know, like they're, Mapes, I think, is a great example. It's so, it'd be so easy to drop Mapes into the bucket that is, he's just a raging racist. Because, and when we read the first half of the book, boy, he sure appears that way. But by the end of the book, I don't know that he's changed so much as we see that he is a pretty full, he has a pretty full figured interior life. And it's not, simple to just say he's one of the good mm-hmm. guys or he's one of the bad guys. He's mm-hmm. on this kind of spectrum where there's a lot of gray. Mm-hmm. Much like you read Barry and you can look at any number of the characters in those books, including say Jay Crow, and say, yeah, this person is a lot more complicated than. Yeah. I'm thinking of um, old Jack in a memory of yeah. old Jack. Which, there's that, yeah. there's a scene. Hopefully we get to do that book on this show sometime, but there's a scene where he has, lent or he's basically rented out a piece of his farmland to a black farmer who's by all notions, not only a great farmer, but a really, really good man. And Jack and he get in, yeah, fast forward 30 seconds if you want to read that book. (laughs) They get in a fight and Jack is clearly to blame and a decision that he had made years earlier about renting instead of selling the land to this man um, just erupts. Is Jack a racist? I don't think so. I, I don't read him that way. He's he's kind of like on that continuum. He made a terrible mistake, but I don't read him as a racist, but I read him as like he's made some bad racially motivated decisions. So anyway, I think Gaines is similarly kind and gracious and even loving to his characters. I think I found him gains to be so loving to the characters that he probably to white characters that are, I think really leaning toward kind of racist opinions. I felt like Gaines was so kind and gentle them to them. And I just, Oh, I admire that so much. Yeah. The, you know, the thing I would just would want to add is so Stegner taught Wendell Berry 
and Gaines, and also Larry McMurtry, who wrote Lonesome Dove, at Stanford in the Stegner Fellowship, which is still going on. And there is a, a common thread through all of them. They're sort of chroniclers of what it means to be American also. Hmm. You know, like the infections, to use Heidi's word, and virtues alike that make up the American story. You know, like the ethos, the attitudes, the milieus like that define what it means to be an American, like to be a breathing person who like lives between the coasts. <laughs> and in particular, like they both sort of eschew East Coast, West Coast stuff, right? Like McMurtry and Stegner are considered like the chroniclers of the West and Barry's this, you know, um, Barry and Stegner are both the chroniclers of the mid of the Midwest and and then Gaines of the South. And so they're they're chronicling and and contemplating what it means to have lived through American history. Like the way the way living in this country changes like your heart and your relationships and the land itself. Um, and so like they might be the, among the greatest of writers about, about what it means to be an American. And I think that's something that they all have in common. They're all looking at it from a slightly different vantage point. They're absolutely all coming from Hemingway's school of prose to varying degrees, but like they're looking at it from slightly different vantage points with sort of different preoccupations. McMurtry writes mostly Westerns, right? Can Barry writes about Kentucky farmers and Gaines about the South and so forth. But, and Stegner about academia. This is interesting, actually. Somebody started a book about this. But um, the, it's, it's what, what does it mean to be American? Like, we, there are a lot of illnesses that, in, but also a lot of virtues. And they're both contemplating both of those things in all of their work. Um, and they've all written some of my favorite books now that I, you know, like, I mean, Crossing to Safety is one of my Mount Rushmore, like, and so is Lilton Dove. So two of my four favorite books are written by two of these guys. So, um, so I really want to read this book now, Timmy, will you write that book for me so I can read it? I think that's your PhD dissertation, David. <laughs> okay. Heidi, I'm going to need you to write it. <laughs> Tim's bailing. It's totally your book, by the way. Yeah, man. That's your book. When am I going to write a book guys? When am I going to write a book? Well, just don't foist it on us just because you don't have time, know, right? right? Write your own well, book. I wanna, I I'm wanna writing a it. book. Tim's writing a book. You write your own book. <laughs> Fine. When I'm like 75, because um, I'm going to have more time when I'm 75. That's, that's what right. I'll just keep telling myself until I'm dead. When um, you're an old man gathering. That's right. <laughs> uh, so Anastasia asks a question. Uh, she says, that she finds it telling that there isn't a complete family in the whole story. The families are all broken or being broken. Why do you think that is? She makes, she makes the point that Luke will makes the comment asking people to care for his family if he dies. And it seems strange that this very racist character is the one who seems to outwardly express care for his family. I think uh, in the comments, then it mentioned they fill fix fix and Gil also care about their families. So what do you read? How do you read this? The, the, the way the book contemplates family, Heidi, what do you think about this? I, I like this question. I, I think that um, there were a couple of comments that uh, on the Facebook page that maybe corrected the first assumption that that there aren't any intact families or people claiming family other than Luke Will, because there are, right? That's, I mean, that's Fix's whole mantra. This is my family. I have to protect my family. Um, and that kind of 
I, I think that that fixes distorted sense of family uh, is is his justification for violence for racial violence. Um, and so it's not a healthy sense of family. It's a very flawed, distorted, and sick sense of family. Uh, although I'm sure there's good things within it, right? Um, but that particular aspect of it is extremely flawed and distorted. Um, and Ernst J. Gaines draws attention to that. Um, however, I think mm-hmm. that with the with the black characters, what we see is is a very strong sense of family, but just a communal sense, right? Uh, they're get the gathering of old men is a gathering of people uh, in a, standing up for their own, for an, a sense of, of, of community uh, and family. And you have within that a really some really strong family bonds that we get a little bit of glimpse into um, and some uh, some bonds across racial lines, obviously Candy and Mathieu being the, the primary one. Uh, but there's there's other signs of that, too, uh, with Miss Merle and Janie. And um, there, there are some pictures of that. Uh, Miss Merle bringing the sandwiches to the guys on the uh, to the gathering, right? So I think that it's we have a, that Ernest J. Gaines is contrasting uh, kind of a sick sense of family and a, and and community with a protective sense of family and community, and also kind of exploring ways that other bonds within a small town that's divided along racial lines, how other bonds can form other than just family. Um, And I think he's also, as you pointed out earlier, David, just kind of naming the fact that, um, that that's one of the fault lines of American culture uh, within the South. Um, And one of is brokenness of family due to violence or whatever. Um, And then also, one of the virtues of small town American life in the South and beyond is that then other kinds of bonds of community form when those bonds of when those family yeah. bonds aren't as present as they ought to be. And I think there's a lot of exploration of that in the novel. I think this book is also in one like adding to a long line of books about the African-American experience that are contemplating the dissolution of, of the family due to slavery. Exactly. And like Agreed. Among many great beloved, evils right, right, beloved. that slavery perpetrated was breaking up families. And if you look at American literature that's about slavery, whether it's um, even like Huckleberry Finn, Tony Morrison, that, that idea, this. yeah, Tony Morrison, yeah, yeah. It, the idea that you that like that's like the river represented the breaking up of the family, mm-hmm. and so they would take the child away. They divide the parents up. You sell them down the river or up the river. And I think like there's a, there's a long line of, of books that are contemplating on that and contemplating how, about how, when you do that, that doesn't like the repercussions of that doesn't just end with the child, the generation that gets split up. Like everybody in that community then is altered. And then the next generation is altered and the next generation is altered. And there's been a, a lot of sociological writing, not just literary writing about the impact of breaking up families due to slavery and selling human beings and taking them from their family and how that's impacting our culture today. Um, like yeah. the impact of that hasn't gone away. Um, it's just different. And so I think that this is, it's, it's contemplating those repercussions in its own way 
and in a very like in kind of a subtle way, I think. So it's just it's in keeping with Toni Morrison and other their books. Eyes, of that well, and their eyes were watching God yeah, begin for, with, for that, sure, with Janie. Yeah. 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 Tim, we're going to say something. I think it's interesting that um, just as Heidi said, the full family gathered around Fix is um, it's the only picture that we have of a full family all in one scene, but we see plenty of black families. They're all in the cemetery. That's right. Like early on in the book, right? I mean, it's so tragic. Mm -hmm. Like there's so many of the characters that before they gather and march to the farm where the murder has happened, they're visiting people who have been, they're visiting nephews, nieces, brothers, fathers, and they're all, they're buried. Yeah. So they, they, I mean, I'm just echoing what each of you have said in in different ways. No, that's 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 really good. Um, Let's do a couple more here. Let's see. We should talk about Charlie. There were a couple of questions about, about his, his, um, his appearance, you know, Jennifer asked about his age and she said she was taken aback when read that he was 50. So uh, what is it about his 50th year that turned him into a man? And why did it take 20 to 30 more years for most of the men gathered there? And then we also have a question about, you know, introducing him at that time in the story made it a little bit unsatisfying, I think was maybe the word that here it is. Yeah, Russell. Am I the only one who thought the climax unsatisfying? I love the book as a whole, but thought giving Charlie a starring role nearly at the end of the book when we haven't even met him up to that point seems less a brilliant literary device than an author struggling with bringing it to an end. So let's talk about Charlie for a few minutes. Heidi, do you see that as, as if he's trying to figure out how to bring it to an end or do you think no, it's a brilliant, brilliant think, literary device? I think he, uh, I think he was planning it all along. Um, I th- for sure. Um, I do think that it it's a valid question to ask whether or not Charlie should have been mentioned a few more times in the first half of the book. Well, the problem is he's not there. Right. You could have, I, I, I think that Russell and Mariana, they're kind of saying something similar. Um, I think they're both right. I think it's something that the author could have improved. Again, I love this book. This is like a minor complaint, but I think there are so many ways that we could have heard about Charlie without Charlie being present. We could have established him as a character. And I think that would have actually added a lot to the conclusion of the right. book. He almost feels a little bit like a deus ex machina. Like, and, it, and, exactly, um, exactly. Meaning that uh, an unfair and of intervening force at the end that wraps everything up. That's that's what I mean by that. Mm-hmm. Um, and Couldn't that be the point, though? It, it very well could be the point. How so? But I still think it would have been better if he hadn't. But make your case. Maybe you'll convince us. I, I just mean, from, from a dramatic perspective, it allows us to experience, like, they feel the same way. They've been gathering all day, and then Charlie shows up, and they're all like, oh, well, that's weird. I mean, like, I'm oversimplifying the way they put it. So for us as readers, like, we're having a similar experience. Like they didn't even consider him. So yeah, maybe so. I don't, I get what you're saying though. Like, I, I think, I think, yeah, you could quibble with that. I, I also wonder if, you know, when you write a book, you don't always know exactly what dramatic choices you make, like how they're going to impact the emotional experience that somebody has reading a book. And that might've been one where he just kind of like, didn't anticipate that we were going to feel that way. And I, I do done, have to done. say, I do have to say what I said a couple 
couple of, I don't remember which episode it was, but I said, I think what's going to happen is that I don't know how it's going to end, but I think when, when it does end, I'm going to say, oh, I didn't see that coming, but it's the only way it could have ended. And to Russell's point, I did not feel that about the Charlie revelation. I didn't feel like, oh, this is the only way it could have ended. I kind of felt like, oh, okay. So now there's this other guy that did it. Phew. Glad he, and then, and then the, and then the character of Charlie was painted so well, like he was drawn so beautifully. Um, and uh, I just think he did exactly what he needed to do in the story, but I didn't have that sense of denouement of like, oh, of course that was coming. Can't believe I didn't see it. What about you, Tim? Did you feel that way? I would have felt it more strongly had I known if more there's about a little more foreshadowing. Yeah. So how else could it have ended? I saw this question. I, I, this is part of the reason why I think this book is so strong. I don't know of a better way to end it. I mean, I could imagine other ways to end it. I don't think they would have been as strong as the way that this book ended. Heidi, do you have other ideas in mind? What do you think, Heidi? Yeah, I don't think uh, that's probably true. I, don't, I, I find that kind of speculative question a little bit um, takes me out of the story a bit. So it's not, it's not one I like, I personally, this is just me. It's not one I personally like to follow because it kind of lifts me out of, of the story um, and makes me feel critical towards it instead of just receiving it and trying to see what the author was doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a, there are reasons for the choices that that they make, I suppose. Let's do the Gil question. Um, Oh, we got to talk about the Gil question. It was mentioned. I think Brandon mentioned, why didn't we? mentioned that he was with his family and uh, Elizabeth also sent a question about that. I'm trying to find how she puts it. She says, what do you all make of the fact that Gil sat with his family in court? And I think that's a, just a pretty good way to enter into the conversation. So despite everything, he ends up being in the same side of the court as his, his, uh, his brother and his father and his nephew. What do you think about this? I want to first own a mistake. I said last podcast something like, as far as we know, Gil never sees his father again. That was clearly a mistake. I just missed the mention that Gil is with his family at the courtroom scene. And Brandon just wants so to wait to make of that. We all missed that, which would have changed our conversation in the last recording. So it was yeah. just like a, we made a yeah, mistake. Yeah, yeah. Forgive us. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so what does it mean? I don't know. It could, I could imagine it meaning a whole host of different things. We don't get anything from our author about it, do we? Yeah. Like there's I no explanation. It, I think it does Gil mean and his something father were reunited. pretty significant though. I think I, it, I mean, with, cause David made the point a couple of weeks ago that I disagreed with and he was right. Like he, um, <laughs> when he said, David, you said that, um, that Luke will was more malevolent than fix. And you took fixes um, like you had interpreted his speeches at face value. When he says, I don't know what to do. I'm kind of stuck between generations. I'm more the old way, but the new ways are coming. And I said, this was all manipulation to try to get Gil back in line. And you said, no, I take it at face value. And I, I, I think the fact that, he was sitting, this is why it was actually a pretty big mistake last week when we didn't catch that he was sitting with his family. Like that's, that's one of those, like, we should have caught that because it does 
I think, confirm what you said, that he that Gil did convince him like he fix actually didn't go and avenge Bo with this violent with by oh, lynching Matthew because he accepts that things are changing and he wants to protect his son. And so in a sense, he doesn't like become a good man. I think that's pretty clear, yeah. but he makes the right decision and that's a good thing. I don't, I don't see I it don't, that way I at actually all. Don't think I mean, I do he either. makes, he makes he the right decision, not, but not for any this sort is of what I'm saying. He didn't he just do it to go, be good. He did it to protect his son. So he made the right decision. And I said, he his wasn't son's going reputation. To. Yes. And he did it because, because yeah, okay, he wants his saying. son to be an All-American. So he made the right decision. I don't think that's true at all. I don't think that's true at all. All of his complaints leading up to that rejection are, you, Gil, are the one who wants to be an All-American, and you want to throw us, you want to kind of like sever ties to so us. Well, I think Gil saves, you want to, like, there, Gil saves the day by not yeah. going. Right. Because his father won't go without all of them. So for his father, it's like, we're either going to go together or we're not going to go at all. Agreed. Um, right. I think that's, so by choosing what he does, Gil, well, he doesn't, he, he saves the day for a moment, then Luke Will becomes the agent of chaos. Just when you feel like, oh, some justice, there might be peace, Luke Will does what he does. So why do you think, but, I mean, what's your explanation for that then? That they're sitting together for, As to trial. why they're sitting together? Well, I can imagine 15 different scenarios. I can but imagine. none of them is that he did it for Gil? Oh, no, that's one of the things that I can imagine. I just don't think we get anything. I don't think we know. It could be... Well, who's Gil going to sit with? Wait, let me back up. Let me back up. Let me back up. Fix does not go to the scene of the murder because of Gil. We're in complete agreement about that. Right. I don't think that there's any sort of... That we see in the book, I don't see any profound change of heart happening with Fix. I think he's motivated by some pervor- perverse sense of family unity, like you said Agreed. earlier. I think that's true. Heidi, too. right? Um, so he doesn't go lynch Mathieu. I mean, but I, I'm kind of like, so what? I mean, he. there's nothing. I don't, I don't see any evidence of change. So I want to be clear that I don't either. End. I, that is not what I was yeah. saying. I'm saying he made the right decision, but he's not a, not for any good reason, not for any moral reason. Okay. So why are they sitting together at the end is the question. I, I just can't see any, I don't see any answer. I can imagine Gil going back to his father after the end of the season and saying, dad, will you reconsider? And his dad missing him and saying, yes, I can imagine Fix going to Gil and saying, I made a terrible mistake. I want you back in the family. Will you come back? And Gil saying, yes, I can imagine Fix like actually being like, you know what? I've been a racist for 50 years. It's time for me to like grow up and leave this childish foolishness. I don't think that's what happened, but it could have happened. Like all these things could have happened. I think like, it's a real mystery as to why they're sitting together as a family. We <laughs> the question is kind right? of confusing I, to I just... me, honestly, because there's three options here. There's, he either doesn't go at all. He doesn't go to the trial over his brother's Gil kill. doesn't. Gil doesn't go to the trial uh-huh. over his brother's death. Or he goes and sits with his, with his family on that side of the, the courtroom. Or he goes and sits with the the people who are on trial and their families on the side of the courtroom. He can't do that 
and first of all, if he did that, that would be like that. Like, I think that would not be in keeping like with Gaines. Like, it wouldn't be realistic, and it would be like you know, they, I don't even think the would he be welcome over there. Like, I just don't. I think the only option is for him to like if he wants to be there, yeah. he's got to have to Agreed. sit by. It. I'm not. Totally. I don't, the book doesn't seem to be saying that he's like sidled up next to his dad and his dad's got his arm around him. He's like, after this, we're going to go to Dairy Queen, boy. I mean, they <laughs> they're just on the same side of the room as far as we can tell. So I don't. I just don't think. I don't think that with his family is an intentional choice and it and it's yeah. a meaningful choice i think it's less about I the mean, family and more about the fact that despite the fact that he is trying to do good he can't just go to the other side of the courtroom like there is an, there is an infection like the institutionalized thing he can't just go right. over there and not look like like that's where the white saviorism stuff like it would look i don't think they would accept him over there Right. I, I, I think totally they would look at him like, that. what are you doing? Yeah. Well, of course that's true. He could stand in the back well, of the classroom. There's a whole host of different so solutions. So then the idea is by sitting by his family, he's then rejecting Pepper. No. No. Do we, we don't know. We don't know. No, the point, well, it's by implication. Yeah. I mean, it's, we're reading between the lines. It, no, you don't think that he could have gone to Pepper and say. That they've ever played together. And so I think what. It just seems so that was, that was a question. meaning. Right. Yes. No, he's not rejecting Pepper. He and but Gil won the argument with Fix. That doesn't mean Fix is a good man. But what I think I think I'm it's funny because I'm like, I'm trying to argue that you were right. That like Fix was <laughs> like, right. That that what what happened was that when Fix says I want to go out and avenge my son, but societal forces are changing and I don't think I can anymore. I said that was a manipulative psychopath trying to get Gil back in line. And you said, no, I think that he meant it. It was a, a, a real confiding at face value. And I'm saying, yeah, I think you were right now based on the fact that he didn't go out and lynch Matthew and that he is sitting by Gil in the courtroom as a family and didn't commit any violence. So whether or not, like you said, whether or not Fix and, and Gil are like, you know, going out and throwing the football together and going to Dairy Queen, to me is not even, as Tim, as you pointed out, that's like we're given no insight or information into the level of their reconciliation or their moral character. But we are told this family is intact and they didn't commit violence against some, a black man who killed one of their own. That's a profound change. I agree with that. I agree. It's a, it's a, it's a generation ago that that it's a change. I think it's a change. I'm not sure. I think the thing we're disputing about is whether or not it's a profound change. It's profound in its effects. I don't think it's a signal of, of a profound inner movement. Heart change. I totally agree. Inner Everything movement. you right. said, I agree right. with a hundred percent. Yeah. We got there. You guys, we got there. David well, still looks family, yeah. family, David. It's about family. No, I <laughs> well, shouldn't. That, yeah, no, that's, that's kind of like a I'm gross saying. argument to make in a lot of this book. <laughs> I, even when I was talking about fix, I was just trying to say that the reason he won't go is is simply because the family won't. He won't. It's either all of them or none of them. And Gil, and the fact that Gilbert says, "Well, in that case, I'm not going." I don't think that 
I think that actually makes Fix angry. I don't think it makes Fix a better guy. I think it. Right. Well, I think it's Gil. Just, his son. I think he just has a code. Right. That's and to me, that's what it is. And so, I just don't think. I mean, what was I just don't what was Gil going to do? Like, I, I don't think there's an alternative. I think he sits over there, and in the very next line, it mentions the football game. I, I think Gil is caught. I, I don't know. That's how I read that. I don't. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily know that we're supposed to read it as like when he's listing. Well, it's tough because I. I, I don't think that he's necessarily saying that the family is intact. Right. There's no insight into that. Right. Um, but I also think you know this is <laughs> this is the school of Hemingway, right? When you the more you, the less you say, the more you say. Right. In some ways, the less you say, the more possibility there is, which allows mm-hmm. people like us to have conversations like this. And that brings me to the, to the, to the little point that we have run out of time on this conversation. So Tim, Heidi, any final thoughts on a gathering of old men before, before we jump into a confederacy of dunces, which as I said, is another book that takes place in Louisiana. Heidi, have you started reading that yet? No, I'm like dreading it. I, I am like putting it off as Heidi. long as I can. Maybe we should just kick Heidi, Heidi off and then, and then let oh her know. Like in I the have first 10 pages, if you're not laughing in the first 10 pages, Heidi. I'm so willing to, I, I hope you're right. I hope I love it. It is I'm a just, very funny book. It's weird. I have been, funny. I have been dreading this because I just don't like gross things. So, um, and like Job of the Hut or like wait, wait, wait. slugs or for, like for our readers who don't know this poutine. book, what's, What's gross about every, the book? Every description I've ever read about it is like, it's the most hilarious book about this protagonist who's fat and greedy and flatulent. And I'm like, ew, <laughs> I don't want to read so you, that. <laughs> I'm going to go, with, Tim, you and I need to do a little research project and come up with all the books that she likes that have extensive scenes of fat, greedy, I've flatulent characters. About a flatulent person in literature yeah. before. I am very nervous about this book. That's why I'm saying. And uh, But I, I do have yeah. a final thought because I thought about my missing white savior list. I remember. Oh. Um, so, okay, here it is. That uh, the second difference that kind of disqualifies Candy from being a white savior in the contemporary sense is that a white savior comes from outside the culture and tries to create change within it. And that's not true nice. about candy. Candy mm. is fully embedded within the culture with a personal stake and relationships uh, and, and her own community. And so that keeps her then from being a true white savior in the sense of like rescuing from the outside. Yeah. And then um, taking, so yeah, that yeah. was my second. And in point. this case, she was even raised most partly by Matthew. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. Adopted as it were. Tim, any final thoughts? My closing thought is that I think part of the reason that Candy is not like guilty of the right white savior complex is that she's a member of the community. She's not an outsider <laughs> to the community. She To him, that is and, so profound. But, That's really wise. Right? I just really want to affirm you <laughs> for having that original thought. <laughs> it was actually it was like such a good point I was listening to you make it and a little bit of me was like I wish I wish I was making this point I am going to make this point I barely made it I like slipped in right under the wire uh, so it was great though it was really great 
Do you have any thoughts for your of your own though? No, I don't. <laughs> I have no thoughts of my own. <laughs> All right. Well, oh, with so that, uh, this has been a great time talking about this book. Um, we're really glad that there's been as much you know, like positive feedback that you guys have enjoyed. Whenever we read a book and it's one that people haven't read before and then you end up liking it, that makes us very happy. So as with Heidi, this next book makes us nervous. Because oh. um, who knows if there are other people like Heidi that don't like flatulence in their books. But I mean, I feel like there's flatulence dip. in Jane Austen. There's gotta be. Like that's kind of like something. There's never any flatulence in Jane Austen. <laughs> Shakespeare. Yeah, that's Shakespeare. That's so, true. so much flatulence in Shakespeare. And you know who I in don't fact, like? Characters you really like, Falstaff. like in plays you really like. <sighs> Falstaff. No, I don't Falstaff, like Falstaff. Is the most gassiest character in and a, I don't like, like, like English letters. And I don't like him. So, but you, but you also acknowledge it as a moral shortcoming. False. Do you not, Heidi White, recognize that your ineffection? For Falstaff is a moral shortcoming for David Kern, for Tim McIntosh, <laughs> and for Tim I'm Heidi White. And to get Heidi <laughs> off the hook. <laughs> you know what? Fine. We're going to end it there. Logan, just end this episode right now. Three, two, one. Happy reading. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.